Okay, let's dive in um, and get going. Uh, we'll start with Thyatira this morning. And um, this is a, an exciting one. Many um, commentators say that this is the crux of the seven churches. Um, I don't know that I agree with that particularly, uh, specifically on that particular point, but uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of attention given to this church. It is the longest letter of the seven, um, and because of the chiastic structure, a lot of people feel like that this is the center point of what is being said. Uh, I think that the three churches together, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis, form the nucleus of uh, what the church is probably going to experience predominantly in today's, uh, in today's culture. Now, we talked about Pergamum, and one of the things that I did not do is I don't think I made it very clear that Pergamum had, what was Pergamum's problem? What was, what was their, in, in sum it up in one word, what was their what was their issue? Compromise. Compromise. All right. And that turns into a word that we're hearing a lot today. Of, so we'll, we'll write compromise. Compromise. And that equates into this word here. Tolerance. Okay. And this is a buzzword today. This is a buzzword. So the culture is telling us that we need to be tolerant. We need to embrace all of these different concepts and uh, that unless you're tolerant, you're really, what's the opposite of tolerance? What, what, are, what are they accusing people of now? Intolerance. <laughs> okay, intolerance. How about this? Hate speech. All right, and they're, they're using this language here to shut a lot of Christian witness down. If you say certain things, you're bigoted. If you say and hold to particular viewpoints, you're narrow-minded. And right now, there's a whole lot going on with the idea of hate speech. And it's to, in my opinion, to remove... in large part, the witness of the church. And we have people right now, pastors, that are afraid to say certain things in the pulpit or who are not saying certain things in the pulpit because of this word right here, tolerance. So let's talk about a couple things. So this is important because it's not necessarily that the church in Pergamum was engaged in sin. It's that they were not making a stand against certain things. And this is where it starts. This is where it starts for the church in America. So what are the things, and we're just going to touch on this real quick before we jump into Thyatira, but I wanted to make sure that we, we, we make an application to where we're at. These churches have to apply to where we're at. What are some of the areas that the church is becoming tolerant or compromised in? Sexual sin. Okay, how, how, do, how so? I mean, don't have to get graphic, but. Okay, homosexuality. Okay. Divorce. 
How about abortion? These are all areas that the church is becoming compromised in. And it's not that the church is engaging in these things necessarily. It's that they're now tolerating it. And what we're seeing in the chiastic structure of the three churches, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis, is that this is the beginning of the process. This is where it starts. This is how the enemy gains a foothold from the inside. Pergamum was resistant from external issue. They, they, had, they had weathered the storm. So the enemy came and tried to force them into compromise, and that didn't work. So they came along, and, and, and from the inside out, they began to, to be eroded. And so these are some of the areas that we, we stand in compromise. Now, what do we mean by sexual sin? Well, we kind of wink at it now. People engage in premarital sex. Or there's just the idea of lust that settles in. And we don't, we don't have a high standard on that. I was listening to a guy in Texas when we were down there, and what he said is that there's a billboard when he drives to and from work that he has to turn his head away from because it causes him to stumble. And I wonder, if in, in our culture today, where even the commercials or horrific on our TV, if we've not become anesthetized. And so this is, this is a big area. This is a big deal, all right? And sexual sin is always equated with idolatry in Scripture, always. Okay, so homosexuality. I mean, right now it's coming into the church where people are, are, are saying, hey, people are born this way. It's being taught from pulpits. So there's a compromise. Divorce. I know people in the church that are divorced two or three times. And abortion, where we, now it's said in and among us that it's a woman's choice. That the infant inside of her is not really life. And I've actually heard it equated to um, parasite. So these are ways that the enemy works its way in. We become tolerant. And we become compromised in our thinking. And we, we turn what scripture understands as black and white into gray areas. And we begin to live in that gray morass. Where oh, it's not really that big a deal because we see it on commercials all the time. Oh, people are born this way. Oh, it's okay to divorce. It just didn't work out, you know. You guys were just incompatible. Or, uh, it's all right, you know, uh, it's not really a life. Let's just go ahead and terminate that pregnancy. So these are the ways that today things are starting to come into the church much like it did with Pergamum. And so when we begin to uh, allow this kind of thing, the next step after tolerance once the, the seeds are sown of tolerance, what begins to happen? The tree blossoms and fruit begins to form. And what is the fruit of compromise? Actual engagement in sin. And that's what happened at Thyatira. Okay, That's the difference between Pergamum and Thyatira. 
Pergamum was tolerant. Thyatira was full-blown engaged. Okay? So uh, we'll talk about Thyatira now, but I just wanted to bring this and, and, and close our discussion of Pergamum with this because I really felt like that this is something that we need to take with us, that, that the church today is, is living in a compromised state. And the very next step after this is engagement in sin. And this word here, tolerance, we have to understand that God does not tolerate. We do, God doesn't. All right? And so there's some of the commentators I was reading when I was going through Thyatira, and one of them said, it's, you have to understand how dangerous the power of God is. And we don't have that anymore. We don't tremble at his holiness anymore. We don't, we're not concerned with white garments. It's, it's, it's this gray space. And this is where the witness of the church begins to erode. This is where the witness of the holiness of God, the set-apartness of God, the, the people that are called to be set apart, begins that when we start to look like the world, we start to lose that lampstand. We start to lose that witness. Okay, And that's what happened at Pergamum. They were beginning to lose their distinctiveness because they were beginning to look like and allow the things of the world to come in. Now, in Thyatira, they were the world. All right? They just... Where's my eraser? Oh, it's right here. And we'll talk about Thyatira now. So any questions on this? Anybody have any comment on, on Pergamon now that we've closed it out? Thoughts? No. Okay. All right. Thyatira. It's the longest of the, the letters. We've talked about Pergamon, Thyatira, and Sardis creating the nucleus of the, uh, the chiastic structure. Uh, false teaching, compromise, Pergamum, Thyatira, the fruit of compromise, which is sin, and then Sardis, the fruit of sin, which is death. And so that's, that's where, we're, uh, where we're at right now. Um, now, what we said is, is that Thyatira, if you read it, it looks a lot like Pergamum, right? Who wants to, uh, let's, let's have somebody read the letter to, to uh, Thyatira real quick. Who's got a Bible handy? Shall I? Okay, go, Josh. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refused, refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, 
who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so there's a lot of similarities between Thyatira and Pergamum. All right, and both churches were committed for being faithful. Both are rebuked for their permissive disposition toward heresy and false teaching. And additionally, it almost seems that the nature of the false teaching in both churches is identical, right? So those things we see are common. Um, and we will see that, that, that they are common because the one precedes the next. However, there must be something uniquely different because if, in fact, these seven churches are chosen to give a cross-section of the way of what, what the church will be dealing with throughout the ages, there has to be something unique about Pergamum. There has to be something unique that, Pergam, that Thyatira brings to the table, right? So um, I was reading a guy named Herman Hoax, Hoaxema. <laughs> it's hard to say. A uh, guy who wrote early in the 1900s. And he says this, and, and I kind of agree with him. And as I'm talking, you, you may think of other churches or, or of, of things that you've heard from other places as we go through this. Um, he says this, Thyatira denotes the condition or tendency within the church to focus on or emphasize spiritual experience that results from the subjective um, that are severed from the objective criterion and test the and test and the test of the word of God. So, basically, Thyatira is the opposite of Ephesus. Ephesus put a great deal of effort on understanding everything by the word. They lived, they, they compared everything. They were fastidious about comparing what was being said to how it lined up with the word. Thyatira is exactly the opposite. They lived for the experience, the spiritual experience of, of the, the moment. And we've seen that in, we've had some of that in our own experience, in our own history. And we've seen it, we see it now in, in, uh, in, in churches around us. Um, I'm trying hard not to say names. Um, Thyatira then represents the exact opposite condition of the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was strong in the objectivity of the doctrine and the knowledge of truth as well as strict in discipline. It was weak in regards to the life of the Spirit in love and inward devotion. So remember, Ephesus was, uh, what's the word, scolded, I guess, for losing their first love. So they had no inward devotion. They were so worried about doing the right thing that they had lost any, any internal devotion. They had lost any heartfelt 
expression. And I, I, I get the feeling a lot of times that Ephesus was probably that church where it was very liturgical. There was a guy that stat, stood off to the side. He read his deal, and everybody was, you know, analyzed everything he said. And then they got up and they left. It was very dry. However, Thyatira, on the other hand, is probably that church where people are jumping up and down, running back and forth, 15 different words. Um, yeah, it's exactly like Corinth. And so um, they were strong in spiritual devotion, and, uh, and that part of the spiritual life which cannot be explained or expressed in words. Also, while Ephesus needed to return to its first deeds, Thyatira had so grown in faith and love that its recent deeds had surpassed those it had done at first. So it was even commended for its works. They were weak in adhering to the objective standard of the word, usually claiming a preemptive spiritual insight. How many of you have ever heard this? Well, the Spirit told me, I know it doesn't exactly line up with the word, but I really feel like I, that this is what... I'm supposed to be doing. This is Thyatira. It's all subjective. It's all feel. Well, this is the seedbed for what happened. Because it's experiential, because it, it's, a, it's a subjective kind of tickle my ear with something that feels good, it was ripe for what happened. And we're going to talk about that. So, unfortunately, churches today are also in the same condition that are uh, along the lines of Thyatira. Uh, his summary of the condition of Thyatira is uh, then that they had become cut loose from the word of God, making instead the spiritual experience of its members the test and guide of truth. Uh, consequently, she had become a fit object of Satan's seductive influence Exposed to any and every error of the kingdom of darkness. All right, those are the, that's a quote out of the book. Now, let's talk about the city real quick, okay? So, Thyatira was an experiential church, not gr grounded in truth, but grounded in subjectivity. I want to go to church, I want to experience something. You don't have to teach me from the word, just play a really good song, make it, make it feel good for me. Uh, have some guy come up and sit. He doesn't even have to speak from the Bible. Just tell me something that just makes me feel good, okay? So the city. Let's talk about the city, and then we'll talk about um, what was going on. The city uh, was described, it, the letter is described as the longest and most difficult of the seven addressed to the least known, least important, and least remarkable of the Asian cities, all right? It's the longest letter, it's hard to understand, and the city is the least important out of all seven of them. Thyatira now, the modern town of uh, somewhere in Turkey, Akisar, was situated in the valley south, uh, southeast of Pergamum on the road between Pergamum and Sardis. So, uh, where's my little marker? There it is. So Thyatira sat in a valley. Um, that was indefensible. It was just wide open. Plains all around it. And Pergamum was here. 
Sardis, which was a very, very wealthy city, was situated on a, on a mountain range over here, Pergamum being the capital, and then there was Thyatira. And Thyatira just sat in a valley like this, okay? Undefensible, and they usually stationed, the Romans usually stationed a garrison there because they, they wanted to protect the road that went to Pergamum. That's the only reason that they had a, a garrison there, was to protect Pergamum. Um, it has no natural fortifications and was said to be one of those cities where situ, uh, situation exposed it to destruction by every conqueror and yet compelled its restoration after every siege and sack. So because of, because of its defense of Pergamum, it was sieged all the time, sacked, and they rebuilt it because... It was, a, it was a, a place that they used to defend the road to Pergamum. Because of its unfortified position, I just said that, Roman, they kept a garrison there. In 190 B.C., the city fell to, uh, to the Romans under their rule, and with the establishment of greater peace and stability, the city grew and prospered as a marketing and manufacturing city. Anybody know anybody from the Bible that came from Thyatira? Lydia. And she was a dyer of purple, okay? Because Thyatira was a guild city. All right? And this is important to know because this is one of the reasons why it was so ripe for the sin that it found itself engaged in. Because... There was nothing specifically about the, church, uh, the city. It wasn't the seat of, uh, uh, of the Roman government. It, the church there was probably in a state of peace. There was not a lot of persecution, not a lot of things going on. There was no, no record of anybody being um, martyred or persecuted. So they, they relatively were free to enjoy their gatherings uh, pretty well unhindered. Um, because of its favorable, favorable position, it became the center of communication and trade, becoming the home of at least 10 trade guilds. 10 trade guilds. In Acts 16.14, Luke speaks of the, uh, of the conversion of Lydia, which we just said. She was a dealer of purple from Thyatira. The religious life in Thyatira is somewhat obscure. Uh, it appears from coinage the divine guardian of the city was the conquering hero Terimnos, also known uh, as uh, Propolis or Propolis, because uh, his temple was found in front of the city. Terimnos was identified with the Greek god, the Greek sun god Apollos, the son of Zeus. And that's important because who does Jesus identify himself with? This is the only place that he is called this in the book of Revelation. How does Jesus identify himself? We just read it. Son of God. All right? So the deity of Thyatira was the son of Zeus, Apollos. And Jesus identified himself as the son of God. So there's a direct statement there against the, the, the reigning deity. Okay? 
Um, Apollos appeared on the coinage of the city grasping the hand of the Roman emperor. And it is probable that Jesus' description of himself as the son was, uh, the son of God was directly counter to the sonship of Apollos. Uh, these trading guilds, however, were each asso- associated with the worship or tutelary, uh, the worship of a tutelary deity. Um, each one had a guardian god. Okay, so you have ten trade guilds, roughly. And uh, there's a guy, and I can't remember his name, a book that I have. Uh, he, he lists all the different trade guilds, and each one of them had their own deity. Now, here's how this worked. If you were going to do commerce in Thyatira, you were probably going to be a part of one of these trade guilds. It's just the way it was. That's the way the commerce worked in Thyatira. If you wanted to make a, make a dollar, you were probably going to be associated with one of the trade guilds. Each one of the trade guilds had a, a deity, a guardian deity, its own guardian deity. And in order to be associated and a member of the guild, you had to participate in the festivals and the feasts of that guild deity. Okay? So, at these guilds, at these, at these festivals, what did they do? Anybody know? Uh, they didn't sacrifice, well, they... they, they offered the food to the idol. So if you went to this, you were going to receive a portion of the food that was offered to the deity for your, for your meal. And then each, usually, what was directly associated with these kind of festivities was what? Sexual immorality. It does sound like Burning Man. So there was, all, there was uh, I don't want to use the word temple because they didn't have temples. Each one of these guilds didn't. But there was cult prostitution. That's the word I'll use. And it was very common for you to engage, in, uh, for, for the people who participated in these, to engage in eating the food and then the revelry that went on afterwards. Now, if you didn't participate in these... What happened? You got cut off. You lost your membership to the trade guild. And you didn't make money. All right? Now, uh, Tertullian had an interesting conversation with a guy. You know who Tertullian is, right? The church father. He had an interesting conversation with a guy who he called out for engaging in this kind of activity. Who was claimed to be a believer. And Tertullian went to him and said, look, you can't do these kind of things. This is a sin. And the guy said, this is my livelihood. Must, I, I, I have to live. And you know what T- T- Tertullian said to him? Must you? This kind of devotion to God is unknown in the world today. It's unknown. Where we figure out a way that, that back in those days, back in, 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 in Thyatira, the expectation was you don't do this. 
And yes, you lose your livelihood. And as we've seen through many of the churches, the people lost their livelihood for the sake of Christ. We would never, in, in America today, we would never consider that at all. We would not think to do that. Is there idolatry right now going on in some of our jobs? Can you think of a way in which our job or the work that we do becomes idolatrous? Obviously, we don't, at, at my job, there's not food offered to a little Buddha doll at the front door. And then we don't have temple prostitutes in the back somewhere. But is there ways that in the current uh, economic structure of America that we compromise for the sake of our livelihood? Can you think of any? There you go. That's, that's a big one. Working 70 hours and neglecting your family. I have a, a few personal ones that I don't usually say right out front, but what about turning your, your children over to the, to the state schools so that you can have two incomes? I personally have a big problem with that. Some people don't, and that's okay, but I think that in many ways we sacrifice our children. In the Old Testament, the primary teachers in the home were the parents. And we, we're losing right now, they just did a Pew study, and we're losing kids now as early as kindergarten. Because my wife does a study almost every week, or she gets an email almost every week about something that they're now forced to teach in the schools. In, in elementary school, they're learning LGBT sexual activity. They have to. They have to be taught that. And I'm wondering sometimes... If we know that, are we not sacrificing our kids to these kind of things? I know this is really granular, guys. This is really hardcore. I get it. I know that it is. But this is what we're learning from these churches. That the church, as it stands right now, it's, it's easy to become compromised. It's easy to, to buy into what the world is selling. And it, it, it doesn't come by overt, ta-da, sin. Ta-da, engage in this. It starts at Pergamum with little compromises, little things that don't seem to matter. And then they, when they bear fruit, it does turn into full-blown sin. So these are hard things for I, You know, i got to tell you, when I read these things and I think about my own personal life when I'm reading this, I'm cut to the core on a lot of things, a lot of things. And it's, it's hard. If God is calling us to be a, a holy, set-apart people, what does that mean? What does that look like? How does that, how does that demonstrate itself in our daily activities? And we, we have to, I think, start to ask ourselves these questions. Right? Is it too harsh? <laughs> Am I being too harsh here? All right. So those are some of the things that I've been thinking about. They're, they're uh, hard to deal with, but I mean, I read this stuff and I go, oh my goodness, I've said that exact thing. I've done that exact thing. I've allowed this into my life. I've, I piddle around with this. I don't, make, I, don't, I don't have the same standard. That line, I keep moving it. A little bit here, a little bit here. So this is what was going on. So we go from Pergamum, where we're compromised, into Thyatira, 
And the words of the Son of God, who's, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. All right, so let's get into the letter now. We've beat this horse to death. Um, let's get into the letter now. Jesus said, he describes himself in this way. Eyes like a flame of fire. And feet of what? Now, this is interesting. Burnished bronze. Feet of burnished bronze. It is said that Thyatira, the, the guild at Thyatira, the bronze guild in Thyatira, had a way of doing bronze that nobody else could do. And the word burnished in, in this is actually a specific Greek term for a type of bronze that was only manufactured in Thyatira. So they knew exactly what was being said. It was it, there was a level of purity to it that it was very difficult to match. So when Jesus said, I am the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, what does that make you think of? First of all, let me say this. Richard Phillips says the following concerning the portrait of Christ. Uh, he gives himself at, at the beginning of every letter. Uh, one of the great messages of Revelation is, is that... The people of Christ are made strong and persevere by the knowledge of who he is. Okay? So a lot of times I think that we talk about having a revelation of who Jesus is. Because if we, we, we sing songs on Sunday morning, look to Jesus, behold him. Because it, it, once we catch a glimpse of who he is, and once we, we acknowledge and have that revelation of who he is, it gives us the strength to carry on. So Jesus describes himself at the beginning of the letter in an encouraging way to demonstrate that he is Lord, that he is sovereign, that he is unapproachable and unmatchable. And the intent is to give the people that the letter is addressed to an encouragement, a revelation of who Jesus is. This is why Jesus appeared to John in the opening vision of chapter 1, radiant in glory and clothed as prophet, priest, and king. This principle explains why each of the seven letters begins with an excerpt from the portrait of Christ given in chapter 1. Each church will respond to Christ's message in light of their awareness of who and what he is. And I would venture to say that we do the same thing. We will respond to Jesus based on what we think and the revelation that we have of him. Do we think him? An awesome, radiant, powerful God? Or do we think of him as our bud? The guy that we hang out with. That's, that gets my, my failures. and Both of those are true. But we usually hold one at the expense of the other. We usually hold on to broke-cause Jesus... My, my best friend, without understanding that he is holy. And he is as, what, is, uh, what, is, what does they say about Aslan? He's not a tame lion. And so what Jesus is showing in these passages is that he is not a tame lion. Burnished bronze. What is the eyes of fire? Can, can any of you think of what that would, what that would signify? Eyes, eyes of fire. D 
judgment. Piercing gaze. Piercing gaze. Uh, this is the only place in... Re- oh, so he calls himself the Son of God, first of all. Let me get to that. Uh, this is the only place in Revelation where Jesus is referred to in this way. Uh, it is uh, a reference to Psalm 2 and probably used to emphasize Christ's royal prerogative in judging all peoples. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. That's Psalm 2. And this is the Jesus that's coming to the church at Thyatira. Eyes of fire. Um, it alludes to the vision of Christ in Daniel 10.6. Uh, both the eyes and the feet of bronze. So this, is, this goes back to Daniel 10. Penetrating eyes that can discern between the dross and the pure. So there is nothing hidden from his gaze. And there are times where we feel like God doesn't, isn't paying attention, right? God, do you see what I'm going through? Do you know how hard this is for me? And yet what he is saying is nothing escapes my gaze. There is nothing that eludes my sight. And it's good to know that our, our circumstances are known by him better than we know them. Penetrating eyes that can discern between the dross and the pure. Jesus is also described as having eyes like a flame of fire in Revelation 19.12. In this description, Christ is coming to judge the nations and to make war. Okay? And that is what he's coming to Thyatira. He's coming to Thyatira in the same way. He's coming as a judge. He's coming to make war. All right, so it's important that we keep that in mind. Feet like burnished bronze. What is bronze? What, what, what does bronze signify throughout Scripture? Anybody know? Yes, you're on the right track. What were the two items? Copper and tin? No, what were the two items? No, not, not what's made. No, I know, that's not what it's made of. That's, no. What, are the, what were the two items as you entered into the, um, the Holy of Holies? What were the, or the entered into the holy place? What were the two items that, that the priest had to do? There was the bronze basin, and he washed, and then there was the bronze altar. That was inside the holy. So as you entered in, so outside there was the bronze laver, and then there was the altar here. And then there was the inside where you had the um, yeah you had the lamp and the table showbread and then you had the curtain here and the ark of the covenant in here like that okay so as you entered into the tabernacle you went and washed in the bronze laver and then there was usually a sacrifice always a sacrifice on the bronze altar. So bronze always had to do with judging sin or the removal of sin. Bronze always has to do with that. And so when Jesus says to the Thyatiran church, I'm coming as one with feet of bronze, what is he saying? I'm coming to judge. 
I'm coming to tread out. There's the reference where he treads out the grapes of wrath. And Jesus is coming to do this at Thyatira. He is coming to judge and to make war. And so his feet are bronze as, as a fitting, fitting statement. Yes, when we get to the repentance part. Yeah. All right. So, uh, I know your works, your love and faith, service and patient endurance, and that your, uh, that your latter works exceed the first. John Stott states that the church at Thyatira understood that the Christian life is a life of growth, of progress, and of development. So, in the grace part that Rick just mentioned, this is what Jesus does. He comes as a judge... He comes to make war, but the first thing he does is what? He commends them. He doesn't want to just destroy his own. He doesn't come to punitively just stomp on people. He comes to restore. He comes because he loves. He comes to say, look... You guys are on a bad, in a bad space. I'm coming to make war on the things that are causing the bad space. But let me commend you on the things that you do well. And you have done works well. As a matter of fact, you've done them so well that your works now are more and better than they were at the beginning. Okay, so out of, they had great love. Thyatirans had great love. They were true lovers. They just lavished, I'm sure, on people. Um, there was probably none in their body that, that were in need of anything. It's just one of these churches that just loved, just gushed over, over each other, okay? Uh, according to George Eldon Ladd, the church had manifested admirable growth in the Christian virtues, her love and faith had steadily increased. So we have this that's going for them. They, they were doing really well with regards to taking care of one another, loving one another, um, being generous, charit charitable. All of these things were a real mark of the Thyatira church. But I have this against you. That you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. All right, you're doing this well. I'm here to wage war on this. I'm waging war on this woman, Jezebel, whom you permit, who is teaching my people to do these things. Okay, and, and we'll see that when, when, as Jesus levels his, uh, his statements against each one of the things, he first talks about Jezebel, what he's going to do with her, and then he talks about those that participate in, her, in the things that she is teaching, and then he's going to talk about her children, all right, or those who adhere to the teaching and propagate it, Okay. For all its love, faith, service, and steadfastness, there is no commendation for holiness. There is no commendation for holiness. They were a loving church. 
They were not a holy church. Uh, the fact that this is of great importance to Jesus is made clear by the fact that this is the longest of his messages to any of the churches. Uh, although there seems to be a distinct similarity between the circumstances here and those of Pergamum, both Herman Hoxima and G.K. Beale make, uh, make a poignant observation that here the false prophetess had actually led the church into serious sin. Pergamum, they were tolerating compromise. In Thyatira, they were engaged in sin. They were actually involved in it, and it was well known. And it, like Rick said, it was like Corinth. Everybody knew about it. In Pergamum, it appears that those holding to the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans existed without being confronted for their heretical teachings. In other words, there was a lack of proper dis discipline. However, here in Thyatira, Jezebel was actually allowed to teach and actually seduce others by her teaching. Um, the situation for the believers in Thyatira was something like this. If you wish to make a living in Thyatira, you would have to be a member of the guild, as we've said. Uh, membership in the guild itself necessarily implied that you worshipped the tutelary god associated with it. Uh, you would therefore be expected as a member to at attend the guild festivals, participate in the feasts, as well as uh, extracurricular activities common to such gatherings. Um, this put the believers in a position of great difficulty, as you might imagine. If they did not participate in the feasts and celebration of the guilds, they could lose their membership. If they lost their membership, they lost their livelihood, and they were ostracized socially. Uh, Chris Maker writes that Christians who refused to honor pagan gods, eat meat sacrificed to idols, and engage in sexual immorality jeopardized their material necessities. Uh, they were regarded as outcasts of society. If, on the other hand, they remained in the guild and participated in eating the food offered to idols and engaged in the sexual activities of the celebration, they deny the Lord. So what, what, what to do, right? This is what the Thyatirans were confronted with. Well, guess who shows up? A prophetess. Who has the answer? Let me explain to you how you can still participate in these things and, be, and make good money and be a part of the guild and still be a Christian at the same time. This is the teaching of Jezebel. This is what she was, she was teaching. And, and Jesus calls this thing, uh, this teaching, the deep things of Satan. All right? Um, prophetess, uh, pro, pro, yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 and we'll talk about that in a, in a little bit. It is probably a localized version of the harlot later spoken of. In uh, I think it's eighteen. Okay, so she is a localized version of the harlot. Yeah, and what we see later on. Yeah, yeah. So. And that's where it comes from. Because, and we'll, we'll see because there's a comparison between the, the Jezebel in the Old Testament and what she was doing here. Um, prophets were highly regarded in the early church and were mentioned in close relation or relationship to the apostles. This Jezebel individual claimed to be a prophetess, having special revelation from God which qualified her to be an authoritative teacher. 
Okay? Uh, as such, it appears her teaching was something like this. In order to combat the ultimate uh, and ultimately conquer Satan, one must truly know him. You can therefore never fully conquer sin unless you have become thoroughly equated, uh, equated, uh, acquainted with it by experiencing it. In other words, the believer should come to know the deep things of Satan in order to overcome the deep things of Satan. Thus, there is no need to remove yourself from the guilds since participating in them fully did, did not deny Christ. It, on the contrary, made one better equipped to stand for him. That's probably the way that, that her teaching went. Okay? All of this she claimed by revelation from God through the Holy Spirit. However, Jesus later refers to such things as we said, the deep things of Satan. Not from him, but, from, but a lie from, the, from, from Satan himself. Okay? Gene, yes? Sounds a lot like the tree of the knowledge of Certainly does. The comment was, it sounds a lot like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat from this, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. If you participate in this, you'll be able to stand. You'll know the deep things and be able to conquer and become better equipped. Right? So that's, that's the teaching. Jezebel is certainly a local expression, as we've said, of the harlot Babylon um, who makes her appearance in chapter 17 and her devotees are those who commit adultery with her. With regards to the above... Note the judgment on Jezebel foreshadows the judgment on the harlot Babylon. In both cases, people fornicate with a harlot. Uh, they, both the Jezebel and the, and the Babylon deceive the people. And in both cases, sexual immorality is the picture of participating in a shadowy form of commerce. In both cases, God's people are commanded not to participate in her sins, lest they be judged and put to death. And in both cases, God judges each according to uh, their deeds. Okay? The name here used is sim uh, symbolically taken from the pagan princess from Sidon, whom Israel's king Ahab had married for political expediency contrary to the law of God. Jezebel brought her false gods and... Uh, with her, and soon, by her influence, the worship of Baal and Asherah had permeated the land. In fact, it is said that she is probably the initiating reason for the eventual fall of Israel. All right? Jesus' use of the name here gives indication uh, of what the false prophetess was teaching, which was to participate fully in the ceremonies and feasts of the trade guilds, for the above mentioned, uh, using the above mentioned rationalization. So the idea is, is that you tolerate her. You tolerate her. Yes, apparently so. Yes, and they were giving her place, and she was bringing her wisdom by the, by the quote-unquote, Spirit of God and giving her prophetic messages. <laughs> All right. So, um, 
This was the primary problem in Thyatira. They tolerated what they knew about and what they knew to be unrighteous. They knew it, and yet they tolerated it. All right? They gave place to it. They recognized the presence of the false prophetess. They recognized her evil character and teaching, but in their toleration, probably considered by themselves to be the correct expression of their love, they refused to deal with her. They were tolerant. Let's don't be so hardcore. Let's hear what she has to say. Right? Yeah. This has caused me to think about something that just recently took place. There was a young gal who became very well known writing and blogging and had a voice in the church and was basically had turned towards the belief that homosexuality was acceptable and teaching and espousing and was influencing multitudes and multitudes of young people and others through her writings and such. 30-something years old, she died about a month ago. Mm. Out of the blue, came down with some bizarre brain disorder. Or She just got sick, went into the hospital and died within a matter of few days. Three or four young children, everybody's going, how could that happen? How could that happen? It's exactly what this is talking about. Uh-huh. It's exactly that. Yeah. And, and so we don't, we don't want to ever tie these things together in our minds and in our hearts because it just seems like, no, you know, God wouldn't do that. Yes, he would. <laughs> yes, he and would. yes, he does. And yes, he is. Because he loves the church. That's right. And, and we just don't understand the, like you're saying, the weightiness of these kinds of sins yeah. and the subtlety of what it does in the church and how God hates it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, uh, it, and and we'll, uh, what Rick is saying is that eventually what Jesus says that he will do, I will kill her children. Yeah. He says that. So we don't, ever, we don't ever speak of this in the church. We don't ever talk about the judgment of God. And I know I should balance this with grace, and I'm trying to. But the truth is, is that we are awash in grace. We know grace very well. Do we know the holiness of God? Are we willing to venture into the truth of his unapproachable light? Are we willing to say, he is by grace saved me, and because of his grace, I will not engage in these things? Yes. Yeah. It, it can be. So the, the comment was that because of culture's influence now, because of the way things 
uh, have slowly eroded over a, a great length of time, it's becoming difficult to know where God's standard is and what, what is culturally okay or what, what we see in culture, is it okay before the, the eyes of God? I think Scripture is very clear. I think it's very clear. I don't think there's a gray area. And I think we've made a, 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 a really, really good um, way of living as a church, not us necessarily, but in gray. We live in gray. And I, I find myself feeling really old-fashioned a lot lately because I say, this is not right. This is wrong. And, and I hear people go, oh, it's, it's okay. It's not a big deal. And I really, I feel old because I say, no, it is a big deal. And we were having lunch a couple of weeks ago, uh, Rick, Maddie, and I. Maddie was saying something about wanting to reintroduce the idea of the holiness of God back into the church. And I think we have got to lay hold of the truth of that. We have got to lay hold because the distinctiveness is our witness. That we stand a holy people is, a witness, is our witness. That we become gray, that we become compromised, we lose the light in our efforts to be culturally relevant. And, and just really quick to an agenda, yep. that, that young girl, I believe, loved God. And I'm not saying that she's not with the Lord. I, I, God only knows. Yeah. But that's not to say that, that you could lose something that God has given you. Yeah. Now, the apostate church is not the true church. No. Uh, but there are a lot of people who are li trying to live in gray because of the influence of the culture yeah. who do love Jesus. Yeah. But the Lord will still not tolerate it. That's right. And that's like you said, point. he doesn't tolerate me. That's, that's a good point. Um, and so we're going to have to close on that note. I want to leave us with the idea that, that Jesus is a holy, holy God. At the same time, he is a grace-filled God. And he comes in judgment because of grace for his own, because he loves you. So and the scripture says that, I discipline those I love. Otherwise, you are not a legitimate son or daughter. So if he comes to you with bronze feet and eyes of flame, know that he's coming to you in love. All right? So with that, we'll, we'll stop. We'll pick it back up next week, and we'll talk about what is to become of Jezebel and what those who overcome will receive. Father, we're grateful. We are sometimes unaware of your inapproachable character. We are sometimes unaware of your holiness. Forgive us, Father, for making light of the things that you abhor. For standing and trying so hard to be gray. When there is no gray in the light of your brilliance. Restore your holiness to your church that we may shine bright in a land that really needs light right now. In Jesus' name, amen.